We're going to commence our service of worship now by singing Psalm 100. Psalm 100. The Psalms are at the back of our hymnal, the words also on the screen. Let's stand, please, as we worship the Lord. Let's bow, please, before the Lord now in prayer, committing our service and our day unto Him. Uh, Father, as we've come this morning, it is with joy and thanksgiving that we bow in prayer, in the house of prayer and praise. And we come, Father, in Jesus' precious and holy name. And we know that there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And we know, Lord, that we have full access into Your holy presence, and we are coming by invitation. We are called to seek, to find. We know we will. And Lord, as we bow our hearts, we bow our lives, we give ourselves afresh, Lord, and rededicate self and family and congregation into Your hands, we pray that every day we will be useful in Your kingdom, that every day, Lord, we will be filled with the Spirit of God, enabled to be a witness, a testimony, to share our faith with those we come in contact with. Lord, take away from us the fear of man that brings a snare, and give us the power of the Spirit, the conviction that we belong to Christ and clothed with the authority that Jesus has given to us to speak His name, to speak His gospel. And we pray, Lord, there would be an ingathering. We cannot save any, Lord, we know that. And we come, therefore, to pray for the effectual calling 
and working of the Spirit in the hearts of those who are without the Savior. Dear Lord, we are thankful for everyone gathered in the service today. We're thankful for visitors that have been coming, and we pray that they will be welcome here in this place of worship, in the place where the Word of God is open and the gospel of Christ is presented. And Lord, that we might enjoy each other's company and fellowship in the Savior. But Lord, we again pray for those who are unsaved. Please, Lord, work in their hearts. Show them their sin. Show them the only remedy that they might come to taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, we ask for blessing on every detail of our service today. Bless our time around the communion table. And we ask, Father, that once more we'll be brought near to think again the great cost of Calvary and of what it meant for Christ Jesus to die the Holy One in our place, so that we might have everlasting life. The Lord be with us now today. We're thankful for those with us in the service and online as well. Bless them all. Thankful our brother Provost is here today. Lord, continue your hand of blessing and healing upon him. We ask for the McFarland family that you would bless Glenn. Put your hand upon him at this time of need. Thankful that Ron is here. We pray for Richard Teo. Remember Serene. Lord, we hold up all of these dear ones before the throne of grace. And those that need touch and healing in one dimension or another, we commit them all, Lord, lovingly into your hands. And so hear our prayers now. Continue to bless us. Lord, we are thinking and thankful for our freedom, but we know there are believers in war-torn and persecuting situations that do not have this freedom. We pray for them. We pray their life would be a light and a testimony in a dark time. We pray for believers in every sector of persecution and war, that you would bless them and protect them and keep them, Lord, and hear our prayer. Let the gospel go forward with great power so that there would be an ingathering. And Lord, make use of us in our time, in our day, in our place. For we want to be a reverberating witness of Christ across our nation. And Lord, we ask to that end, make use of all of us, everyone who names the name of Christ. Hear our prayers, Lord, today. And bless us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles now, please, to John chapter 8. Just a few verses I want to read uh, to you at this time. John chapter 8. The account of the Scripture here, the Lord is in the temple and He is sat down, He's teaching the people. The scribes and Pharisees brought to Him a woman taken in the sin of adultery, and they were tempting Christ, wanting to see what He would do. Would He call her to be stoned? Would He just release her of that? And of course, the Lord, in His wisdom, had turned the scales back on them. And whatever He bent down and wrote in the ground at that time, two occasions, we're not told what He wrote. A lot of commentators wonder, well, maybe He wrote about some of the sins that these characters had recently been involved in themselves. Maybe he wrote some of the commandments of God that brought conviction. But we're told that one by one, from the eldest down to the least, they all were convicted of their own sin and they left. And so the Lord spoke to the woman and said to her, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. He continued teaching in the temple. And the scribes and Pharisees were not satisfied with that. They challenged his identity. They challenged His character. They challenged His truthfulness. Well, we're going to read in verse 28. Then Jesus, or then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, 
And you will notice that he is in italics. So Christ is saying to them, you will know that I am. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. And the Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The Lord bless His own precious word to our heart today. I want to speak to you later on in our service about the subject of the truth of God's holy word. Welcome you all to our service this morning. We're glad that you are here in person and with us online today. A word of congratulations to Michael and to Jocelyn Mungro in the birth of Timothy this past Wednesday night. We rejoice with them. I had good conversation with Michael and Jocelyn this week to encourage them, and they are very happy and thankful for your prayers. And as we think about welcoming, we're happy that Elaine is with us today, uh, visiting Grace, the family. And our dear sister Grace had her 90th birthday uh, just this past week, and so that's an encouraging uh, marker. We're thankful for that. Love to see Sharon and also Lisa with us as well, and others who are visiting and if you've turned a birthday that's significant and I don't know about it, well, you let me know and I'd be happy. We'd all be happy to recognize that and these milestones that are being made. As you can see, our communion table is set and we will meet around this table at the conclusion of this morning service. And if you are born again of God's Spirit, then you are welcome to fellowship with us around the table. If you are not a believer, if you've not trusted in Christ yet, you're welcome to stay, but we ask you not to take of the elements as they come by you. Let me ask you to think about your changed phone numbers or addresses. We're updating our directory for the congregation, and if you could send them to the office email, that's office at torontofpc.ca, and then we'll be sure to make those updates for everyone. Get that done as soon as possible. Please remember our prayer time before the evening service this morning, or this evening rather, at 5.50, and then our evening service. There will be a hymn sing after the evening service tonight if you are able to stay. Please remember as we make preparations, final preparations for our mission trip to Korea, we'll be heading off with the Kims tomorrow morning, an early start, heading to the airport about 5 a.m., and so flying to Vancouver and then from there to Seoul, and we'll greatly appreciate your prayers for all the ministry and meetings and opportunities of fellowship that we'll be having over this time, and uh, pray the Lord would yet bring in a harvest for as a result of that. Wednesday night prayer meeting this week at 7.30, and Brother Alec Newell will be bringing the word at the prayer meeting. Let me encourage you again and remind you, as we think about supporting our students, student ministers, and the work in Fredericton, you will notice as you go out in the foyer, they are, there are two new offering boxes that are attached to the wall, one on the left side, right side, one on the left side, and uh, we can start making use of those boxes now. The offering plate is still on the table out there, and if you would like to leave an offering for the Lord's work, uh, please use those, the envelopes that are there and the boxes. And while we're thinking about that, you know, as we draw near to the end of the calendar year, accounting is being done in our own personal affairs, and it's important to be sure that 
the accounts are kept up for the Lord's work. And be sure as you're giving your tithes and offerings that that would be in place and we don't owe the Lord anything. Of all the bounty and the benefit and the blessing that He has given to us, we want to thank Him for all of those mercies. There's a change of date to the uh, Jamaica mission trip. We announced uh, last Lord's Day. There was a conflict to do with the first date, so the date has been moved to August the 10th to the 17th of 2024. And if you are interested, you speak to me very soon, and uh, we will uh, have a meeting with the elders and so on to there's an application form that has to be filled out. About 10 people only are going to be selected from all of our churches in North America for that trip. And I think you would greatly appreciate it. If you're interested, please let me know right away. We're going to sing number 28, How Great Thou Art. It's to a different tune, but a familiar one to us. And I want the instruments to play through uh, the opening verse, and then we'll invite you to stand and sing together. It's in number 28 in your hymnal. You will notice that on the chorus that uh, we have to just stretch out some of those syllables in order to uh, make that fit properly. But let's praise the Lord by this. And we want to sing it with uh, care and meaningfully as we praise God today. Let's stand.
these words are very precious and you are doing very well on this tune. But look at the words of this final one. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim or there continue to proclaim my God how great thou art. Let's lift it up on this final verse. When Christ shall Now, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 John. The book of 2 John. And I understand that our brother Simon has been going through this book in the adult Bible class. And so, if we touch on some of the same points today, well, between the two of us, we hope that the truth will come through loud and clear. The epistle of 2 John, verse 1, "...the elder unto the elect lady and her children..." whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love, I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed his partaker of his evil deeds. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. Please bow in a word of prayer.
Father, again, we have the Scripture open. What joy and blessing there is for us. We have the Bible in our own language. It is not hidden away from us. We are freely able to take and read as often as we desire. And Lord, write the truth upon our hearts this morning. Draw near to us now and encourage us, I pray, in the Savior's precious and holy name. Amen. We've been thinking over the last number of weeks about the Protestant Reformation and the benefits that have come to us as a result of that. And one of the greatest benefits and the legacies of that revival of God's grace is bringing the Word of God, the Bible, back into the hands of what we call the common man, the ordinary person, which is you and me. It had been kept hidden for many years by Rome, and only a select few had access to it, those who were in the priesthood or studied in the universities. Rome had kept the Bible out of the hands of the people because they wanted power. They wanted the power of soul interpretation of the Word, and if they had soul interpretation, it meant that they had complete control over the people. To the Roman church, the Bible was not authoritative apart from the authority that the church gave to it, which is completely reverse. In other words, the Bible was not the, the Bible was rather the product of the church instead of the church being the product of the Bible, which is the correct way. No wonder then it was called the Dark Ages at that time because the people didn't have the Word in their own language, in their own hand. But when men came to the light, the light of the authority of holy truth, they realized it was for the truth's sake that they must stand. And even if it meant going against popes and councils and decrees and church fathers and a thousand years of teaching, because the truth had set them free, they realized they must hold on to that truth with all their heart and soul and life. And now today as we come to this second epistle of John, it is believed it was written around 95 A.D. And though John's name does not appear in it, it bears all the marks of the character of the Gospel of John and also 1 John, the epistle. And it has only 13 verses in it, but like the minor prophets in the Old Testament, it is not minor in its value, though it might be small in its size. It's written to someone called the elect lady, and commentators, some, believe that it's dealing with a specific person and her children, while other people and commentators hold that it is a reference to the church of Christ in a general sense. This small letter, it gives prominence to the commandment of love and of a strong warning against false teachers. What I want us to do this morning is to look at the key phrase in verse 2, which is simply these words, for the truth's sake. And I want to show you from this text that our whole Christian life and our testimony, it must stand upon the truth of God's Word, and it must be for the truth's sake. But I show you in the first point today, and we ask this obvious question, well, what is truth? If you were to ask ten people on the street today, well, what is truth? 
they would give you perhaps a different answer. If you were to find a Buddhist person and ask them what is truth, they might begin to tell you about the eightfold pathway that eventually leads you to nirvana. If you were to speak to a secular humanist, they would say that truth is drawn from my human experience, from the inner voice that is relevant or has relevance and serves an end in view. In other words, the end that I have in view to accomplish my goals and my aims. It's not something absolute. It's something that is relative, and it changes. It changes according to your society, your position, your circumstance, the age in which you live in. And so, therefore, there is nothing as solid as a a foundational truth It is something that is always in a flux, always in motion. To ask a politician what truth is, well, you might find that that's a statement that would secure votes for the next election. What about a salesman? Well, if a salesman thinks he's going to make a deal, he'll tell you just about anything to sell you that product and make that deal. Not all salesmen, but some. The Roman governor Pilate, he asked what is truth when he stood before the Lord Jesus Christ. But at that time, he did not know that the very embodiment of truth was only a few feet away from him. Christ Jesus is truth in person. And John, in his opening chapter of the Gospel, said, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through or by me. But not only is our Lord Jesus Christ the truth of God in person, we have the written Word which shows us in detail all that God wants us to know about His Son and what God requires of us. When the Lord says, Thy Word is truth, He is telling us that His written revelation, His written revelation gives us a record of Himself, of who He is, and of what we are to know about Him, and then what we are to do in relation to what we know about Him. And that's what God has given to us in His own written revelation. But when we think about Christ, who is the truth, it really can be explained that it's the DNA of what makes the person and character of our Lord. We can expect that the world and all the unbelievers, they will have a very minimal interest in the Bible, at least in any sense that It commands authority over their life. They may have a historical or social curiosity in its content, but that's about as far as it goes. To admit that it is from God, if they were to say such a thing, even in um, a remote kind of an acknowledgement, there would have to be at least these two responses. The first one would be this, that I must find the answers to the ultimate questions that the Bible asks. So if they're going to come to the Scripture with some kind of honesty, they would have to at least grapple with the question Jesus asked, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You have got to come to address some of these ultimate questions that the Bible poses. But the unbeliever, if they acknowledge 
that the Bible is the Word of God, it might be kind of with a nod and a wink. Sort of, oh yeah, okay, that's the Bible. They don't deny that it exists. But also not taking it too seriously. Because they don't want to have the claims of the Bible having too much of a power or authority over their life. They don't want to follow the commands. They want to live their life. They pay lip service to the existence of the Bible, and that is a nice standard. We like to have the Ten Commandments. They're okay. We don't even mind them posted some places, but let that be about as far as it goes. It's a book that sits on the table in the courtroom, or at least it used to, and people would have to swear on it. I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But they don't even have to use the Bible anymore. They can just swear to nothing or the air. So to avoid the question, what is truth, or claim some kind of neutrality, sometimes people say, well, I just don't know. I'm sort of like a fence-sitter. But friend, you cannot be a fence-sitter when it comes to something of such magnitude, of such great importance. We have to come to grips with the reality of how the Scripture defines itself and how the Son of God claimed to be the very truth of God. You can't be neutral on this matter. Because if you say and claim neutrality, your eternal soul demands an answer. And Christ Jesus he is the one that holds the key to that answer. So we ask another question. Who is it that has the truth? Who has it? Well, we know if we're believers that all truth comes from God and it resides in Him. In one sense, He possesses, and in another sense, it is the full expression of His nature and character. So truth does not reside outside of God in that sense, because truth is the very thing that defines who He is. It defines His character and His nature. Because we know it is impossible for God to lie, there is no shadow of turning with the Lord, and truth is as far from deception as light is from darkness. You see, truth is the very core of everything that is right and noble and honorable and transparent. It is the pure source of every clean and right and noble fountain. There is no lie in God. And so the fountain of truth flows from the Lord Himself because it's who He is and what He is. Simply put, the truth of the Bible has been revealed by the Holy Spirit to those who have been saved from their sin. And if you're a believer today, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have been brought into a living relationship with the Lord Jesus, and you love Him today because you love the truth. And the truth now abides in you as Christ abides in you. And so when we ask, who has the truth? Well, of course, it abides with God. It flows from Him. But it dwells in the very being and life of every true Christian. And I say true because... Look, you know as well as I do that there are many people that call themselves Christians. People can go to church. They can say they've been baptized. They can go all through the events and elements of what they think defines a Christian. But inside their heart, they're not really changed. They still promote self-righteousness as the way in which they will please God at the end. Christianity becomes a mark of society's acceptance in some places maybe family acceptance, maybe a child or a young person, maybe you have been brought up in a Christian family. You don't want to disappoint mom and dad, so yeah, you put forward your believer. 
but really in your heart you're not. There's darkness in your soul. So, the Word comes to you, does truth dwell in you? Is it in your heart? When the Holy Spirit brought to us conviction of our sin, and by His power we were made alive, and we saw the ugliness of our own sin. And that it could only be removed by trusting in the completed cross work of our Lord Jesus. I spoke to a person recently and asked them, how is it, friend, that you think you will get into heaven? How is it that you will answer the question when you come to the gate of heaven, why would God let you in? And he paused for a moment, and he began to think in his mind, well, I have I've lived a good life. I, I have been a reasonable person. I have been a, a good neighbor. I, I have not cheated anybody. I, I, have not, I have not done anybody any harm. And then he said this, he says, I have a little problem with women, he says, but beyond that, it's not too bad. And this was his sort of justification. He said, God will therefore accept me. I'm not a bad person. And that's exactly what the world thinks today. And people build up their own levels of self-justification. But friend, it's not until we see the ugliness of our own sin. It's not until we acknowledge that everything we touch and everything we do is contaminated by our own sin. And we must have that sin question dealt with. And the Holy Spirit, that reveals the truth of our sinful state and then the truth that points us to the only one who can deliver us from that position, our Lord Jesus. Well, there's a change that takes place when we receive Him and we are born again. And God's Word dwelling in us it means that we love Him, we love the truth, we love His Word. But it doesn't mean that we have kept all the truth perfectly. No, there is still a struggle that goes on in our Christian life. We know that. We endeavor to understand it. We want to know more of His Word. We are do well to pray, Lord, write Your Word and Your truth upon my heart and let my conscience be sensitive to the leading of that. And I want to willingly submit to Your Holy Word and the authority of it in my life. Have we arrived there yet? Have we come to that place where we have held on to the truth perfectly and completely? No. But when we get to see our Lord, when we come into His presence, we will see Him, and we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. And then everything will be perfected in our nature and life as we are with our God. So yes, we do hold the truth. We do possess the Word of God in our hearts, and we love it, and we love Him, and we want to see it, Lord, completed in our lives. But John goes on further to speak in this short letter. And in verse 1, he speaks about our fellowship that is based on the truth. It's the third point I leave with you this morning. Our fellowship is based on the truth. Look at verse 1 again. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. So there was an acknowledgement that John had that either this person he's writing to or the church that he is making the application of this to, which does come down to all of us today, we love one another because we abide 
in the truth that has been revealed to us. We love one another because we love Christ. Now, we know there are many common interests that people have. Sports, art, botany, technology, any number of hobbies that people have. Usually, if you are attracted to one of those types of things, you are going to be more associated or connected with the people who like those things. And also, people of the same culture are generally drawn to their own in a crowd, or if they're in some strange place, they'll gravitate toward their own people, those that they have association with. When it comes to those who are saved by sovereign grace, we have the witness of God's Spirit in our hearts, in our life. And it should be conspicuous. It should be very obvious that we are different. And when we meet someone, we can see in them they bear the same marks of redemptive identity. Uh, we can see that there is a joy of the Lord in their heart. Their face is shining with the reality of Christ in their life. Are you like that? Am I like that? When someone meets us, do they know right away if they're a believer? There's something different about that person. I believe they're a brother or a sister in the Lord. And the more that is known about the interest and the love of God's truth, the greater the affection will be with those who we often say are of like precious faith. We have an affection toward them because they have an affection toward Christ. And we can say that we love them because Christ has first loved them. And we are united. And that's why John emphasizes the foundation of fellowship. The foundation of unity has got to be upon something that is outside of us personally or naturally or culturally. It has to be based upon God's holy and precious Word. There may be differences that we have, and there are, of conviction, church government, eschatology, baptism, some other conviction that you have, but the centrality of Christ and the centrality of Him in the Word of God and a love for the truth, that means that we have fellowship that is based upon those fundamental doctrines and teachings. John said that if someone comes and says to you that Christ has not come in the flesh, he is an antichrist. He exposed the evil in order to promote the good. There has to be the positive and the negative in our Christian testimony. We cannot just say all positive, 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 positive about God and His Word without also sharing and telling and preaching and exposing the things that are negative. The prophet asked, can two walk together except they are agreed? Can two have fellowship? And it doesn't mean that you can walk down the street with someone and be a good neighbor and say, friends, that's not what that means at all. This is talking about something that is of a connection, a union between two. Can two be unified if they are not agreed? In the very core doctrines of God's holy Word, there must be unity in this divine truth or there can be no spiritual fellowship. There comes a time when such fellowship has to be broken as well, when error is given into, if it's personal error or sin, or is it corporate error or sin in, in an ecclesiastical sense, there comes a time, friend, when we have to make our stand on God's holy Word, and we're going to have to separate ourselves 
from those that either walk disorderly or their church direction is going against God's Word. And when we think about this personally in the individual life, that's why Paul said to the Corinthians that you cannot join Christ and Belial. It's Christ and the devil. They cannot walk hand in hand. There's no unity there. That's really what the prophet is getting at when he said, can two walk together except they be agreed? Light and darkness don't have fellowship. And that's why Paul went on to argue, you can't be joined with an unbeliever. And that really has to do with the unity of marriage. How many circumstances, situations do you know of where a believer has married an unbeliever and their life that started out sailing on everything will be good and the believer will convince their unsaved uh, mate, oh, come to Christ, it'll be right. And before too long, you find out that that unbeliever does not want the Lord in their life. And now you begin moving on two completely different tracks. And often those marriages end in disaster and they are broken apart. No, friend, you cannot have that unity with someone in a marital situation. And yet also the Christian sometimes asks, well, is it okay to stand in unity in society with those on moral issues of the day? And it's called co-belligerency. That's the technical name given to it. It's when the culture is being confronted by Christians and non-believers because they might both have the same moral desire to see abortion eradicated, to have capital punishment reinstated in our nation, to take a stand against some other moral ill. But ultimately, when a Christian, a believer, tries to unite with an unbeliever in some cultural context, there's eventually going to have to be compromise of the truth of God's Word. And that's why, believer, we must be very careful about that. And we will endeavor as a church fellowship, as a denomination, to make our stand for truth and against the moral ills of the day and the cultural aberrations that are going on. But let's be very careful where we come to join in that crossing that line. We hold the truth. And we love the truth. But we must have fellowship that's based on that truth or there cannot be faithfulness to God's Word. And I close with this this morning. The fourth thought is, it is our anchor for all eternity. Look at verse 2. He said, For the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Let that sink into your hearts today, friend. The truth of God, it gives permanence to the believer, to our life. It gives us a solid foundation to stand on in time. But God's truth will not change or diminish as we move into the years of eternity. Oh, in life, our sinful nature and our bad habits and our aging bodies and decaying health, the financial woes, the broken relationships, and on and on we go. All of those things will be with us, but praise God, standing on His truth, it will be something that never ends. It's an eternal anchor for us. And John remarks that the truth will be with us forever because it does not change. It does not grow old. It does not rust. There are no signs of decay. The truth of God, it's, it's more than just a concept. 
It is such an anchor that cannot be moved, and it's stable as God Himself who defines it is stable. For the truth, if it could change, then so could the God whose character it represents change. And that's an impossibility. And so because the truth does not change, we are certain that the promise of God remains intact. And if we can think about time in heaven for a million years, once we are there for a period of time, there will not be any wear lines, no pressure cracks to the hall of truth. It stays intact. It stands unmovable for all eternity. And friend, I ask you today, do you know this God whom we are talking about? Have you come to believe in Him with your heart and your soul? Do you know the truth and the peace of God that passes all understanding? Because it's the only way you can know true joy and true peace in your heart, in your life, by laying hold of the divine Savior by faith. It is by receiving the truth who He is and what He has done for you. And I pray today that you would come to rest in Him and know the peace of God that passes all understanding. We're going to sing a closing hymn today before our communion service, number 214. A friend, if you have a question about your soul, salvation, about anything I've been speaking about today, speak to me in person. If you're here and online, send us an email and we'll get back to you and respond to your question. But don't delay, for now is the accepted time, the Lord says. Now is the day of salvation. And Christian, for us, no matter what happens, we can say we are standing on the promises of God of all that Christ is and means to us, we can rejoice in Him. Let's stand, please, as we sing number 214.
Now, just before we sing this final verse, if you are not able to stay for our communion service, please feel free to leave while we're singing this final verse, and we will conclude with praising God. Standing on the promises, I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit's call. Final verse. Final verse.